0: So if you're new to us or this is your first time here tonight, we've been working through the the book of Matthew chapter 23 in which Jesus outlines seven woes to the Pharisees. And if if you want to go back, you can feel free to look on our website and, and look back at any of the sermons that you may have missed as Jesus calls out to the Pharisees for so much of what they missed And as Pastor Tim said, it's easy for us to think of Pharisees as other people, when in reality, the Pharisees were those who were the most passionate, who cared the most about following after God, yet they missed the mark so often. And tonight we're going to dive into the seventh woe that Jesus has here in Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 to 36. Well, if you were to, to look up online and look what are one of the most popular TV shows of all time, one that will pop up regularly on most, if not every list, is a show that ended about five or six years ago called Breaking Bad. Called Breaking Bad. And it doesn't matter if you've watched the show or not, but the, the show Breaking Bad centers around, this is the main character who in the show, his name is Walter White. His name's Walter White. Now, the first episode of the show, Walter White is a very normal person. He is a high school science teacher. You're like, how is a show about a high school science teacher one of the greatest shows of all time? I don't understand. In the first episode, Walter White is diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he realizes that he wants to leave something for his wife and for his son once he has gone. The end is almost here. He has, I think it was less than a year to live. And by chance of circumstances, he runs into a former student of his who is always in trouble, who now is a drug dealer. And he says, hey, this is a way that I can make some quick money. And because he is a brilliant science teacher, he starts to make crystal meth and because he's A science, he does it, and it's the best crystal meth that ever has been made in the area. And so he becomes a drug supplier and drug dealer. Now you're like, okay, I can see how there's some drama here and why people would want to watch this. Immediately, as he starts to make this money, he has this idea in his head, I want to make this amount of money, and then I will stop. And he says over and over to the people that he's working with, I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for my wife and for my son so that they have money once I'm gone. Well, as the show goes, the radiation, the treatment works and he's healed. But does he stop dealing drugs and making drugs? No. He doesn't. And as the show goes, it's called Breaking Bad because he goes deeper and deeper and deeper into this world and all the deception, the lies, the drama that comes with it. And all along, through seasons and seasons of this show, he consistently is saying, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for my wife and for my son. I'm doing this for my family to provide for them. Until finally... The last episode of the entire series, the last scene with him. And at this point, sorry, I'm ruining the show for you. His ex-wife, he comes to her and he says in one of the most pivotal moments in the show, I did it for me. I did it for me. Because as you're watching, as a viewer, you see, you're not doing this for your family. Literally, he has tens of millions of dollars stored up. Like your family doesn't need, he was doing it for himself and for his own power and how it made him feel. Yet he lied to himself and it cost him everything. Sometimes the lies that cost us everything are not the lies that other people tell us, but the lies that we tell ourselves. See deception can come into our lives in many different ways and in the Bible it talks about being aware or being aware of deception that could come into your life. The Bible talks a lot about false teachers and that they could give deception into you. So we need to be on the aware against false teachers and some teaching that may come into our lives. The Bible talks a lot about the influence of others and how if you're around people who don't honor and follow God, how that could naturally help you deceive you and take you away from the Lord. That was all the warnings throughout scripture of idolatry and and being in places where idolatry was tolerated. But I think perhaps the most, the the easiest way, excuse me, that we are deceived today isn't from false teachers and it's not from the people around us. Oftentimes, the easiest way we are deceived is by ourselves. We deceive ourselves all the time. The easiest person to deceive is not your kids, it's not your parents, it's not your boss, it's not your spouse. The easiest person to deceive is yourself. You can talk you into making all kinds of bad decisions, right? As one pastor said, there's one consistent in every bad decision you have ever made, you made it. You were there, you were a part of it. You have been a part of every bad decision you've ever made. And as we think tonight, we're gonna look at this idea of self-deception. And it runs here throughout this seventh woe, and it runs throughout scripture, When I was thinking this week of of an example of people who were deceived, who had deceived themselves, my mind went to to one of the churches in Revelation that is written to the church at Laodicea. And it says to this group of people, this church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 For you say, they talk about themselves, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. They think they're great. And God looks at them and said, Not realizing that you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They had deceived themselves into thinking they were okay when God saw them and said, you are far from it. And tonight we're going to look at the Pharisees and as they struggled with self-deception. I want us to, to think about how in our own hearts and in our own lives, this is an ongoing struggle for each and every one of us, that we can tell ourselves lies. We can deceive ourselves that will damage us and our relationship with God. So in the first, uh, the, the seventh will, the first point tonight will be in Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 29. Starting at verse 29 where Jesus says the seventh woe to the Pharisees. And he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying this, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets." In uh, the sixth woe that we looked at two weeks ago, it was about whitewashed tombs, about whitewashed tombs and how the Pharisees were actually corrupting the people around them, just how a tomb would make someone unclean back in that time. And Jesus continues this tomb imagery to the seventh woe and talks about how they have built tombs to the prophets and decorated the monuments of the righteous archaeology will tell us that in this time, there was actually a boom of building monuments towards those historical figures in the past. They were creating monuments and structures to honor the prophets that had come before. But in doing so, it wasn't just to honor the past, but to try and honor themselves in the present. Because by building memorials to honor the prophets, what they were saying is we actually would have treated them differently than our fathers did back then. See, we're honoring them, whereas they had disgrace back in that time. And by building these, they were trying to set themselves apart as saying we would have treated the prophets, we would have treated the messengers of God differently than what was happened back then. They're saying if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken Part in the shedding of blood of the prophets. See, throughout the Old Testament, there's a history of God's people rejecting the prophets. The prophet is simply one who brings the message of God to his people. And lots of the books of the Bible of the Old Testament are messages of the prophets. And Israel has a long history, the people of God, of hearing from a prophet and then rejecting him, sometimes even to the point of violence. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Jezebel has said to have killed nearly every prophet of the Lord. It's why Elijah is left in such despair that he feels like he's the only one left because the rest of them have all been killed. In Nehemiah chapter 9, 26, this is one of the the confessions that Nehemiah has that their fathers have killed the prophets. And even if you were to read through the book of Jeremiah, who's one of the prophets in the Old Testament, You see, he's living under constant threat of violence. He's constantly imprisoned and enchained and under death threats constantly throughout his entire life as he seeks to minister to God's people, to bring the word of God to them. See, and the Pharisees said, oh, but if we would have been alive back then, it would have been different. See, the first peril of self-deception So when we deceive ourselves, what we inevitably do is we just repeat the past. We repeat the past. And the mistakes that were made before us, we repeat those over and over. And it's easy to look back and to say, oh, well, if I had done that, it would have been different. When in reality, we're doing the same things that we're saying we would not have done back then. See, there's a deep irony if we would have read all the way through the book of Matthew. And we get here to Matthew chapter 23 and we see Jesus accusing them of doing the same thing that they say, we would never do what our fathers did. Because Jesus isn't just a prophet who comes from God, brings the message of God to the people. Jesus is God himself bringing the message of God to the people. He is not just a prophet. He is the greatest prophet. He is God himself bringing God to the people. You look at the Pharisees' response throughout the book of Matthew to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, it says this in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And destroy wasn't like they were going to post some mean things about him on Twitter and start a hashtag war, like I'm against Jesus, let's all join the club. Almost every translation, if you have the NIV and others, they would translate this word destroy as Kill, murder, get him out. It's clear the Pharisees' intentions towards Jesus. Just two chapters before this, which chronologically would have been about a day or two before, it's in the final week of Jesus' life, He tells the Pharisees the story of the parable of the tenants where a man plants a vineyard and that servants go to collect what is rightfully due and they kill the servants. And he thinks, I'll send my son. Certainly they won't hurt my son. And the son goes and he too is murdered by them. And then realizing what this parable meant, it says this in Matthew chapter 21, verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. See, they were blinded, the Pharisees were, that they were doing the exact same thing that they said they would never do themselves. They deceived themselves and did the same things as before. See, rather than learn from the past, so often we just simply repeat the past mistakes that have happened in our lives over and over and over again. Sometimes these are devastating, sometimes they're small. For me, a small example of this, of repeating the past rather than learning from my mistakes, is I love to go out and eat tacos. Am I alone amongst companies? Does anyone else? Love it? I love Mexican food. Now, here's the thing not at every place, but at lots of Mexican restaurants. Before you go and you're, oh, you can't wait, the tacos, maybe it's enchiladas, night, whatever it is, you're so excited for it. And then they bring out the chips and salsa. And you're like, I'm just going to have a few chips because I'm saving myself for the tacos. And like three baskets of chips later, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. What did I just do? And the tacos come and you, you're like stuffed and then you push through the pain and you eat the tacos and you feel like you need to be wheeled out of the restaurant to your car. Two weeks ago, I had a lunch meeting at Uncle Julio's right down the street. I had way too many chips and I had the rest of the office the rest of the day like, I am not going to do that again. Why did I do that? Monday night, this last week, I'm out to eat with a lot of my family who was visiting in town. We go straight from work. My wife and I get there a half hour early. What do I do for a half hour? I eat way too many chips before the tacos. I'm like, why? I'm just repeating over and over and over again. But sometimes the things that we repeat aren't as funny as just eating too many chips. It's we've been raised and we've come from dysfunctional hurt and pain and the things that we've promised we would never do. We look back and we see, I'm doing the exact same things that I swore I would never do. I swore my mom, my dad, my siblings, my older brother, sister, they did that. And I swore I would never be like that. And we're just going down a path of just repeating the past over and over and over again. See, we deceive ourselves if we think we can change the cycle without dramatic help and intervention of God in our lives. And that's why there's a a quote, it's not me, I don't know who read it, I looked it up, I couldn't find exactly the source, but it says, pain that's not transformed is just transmitted to others. And pain in your life that's not transformed by the power of Jesus Christ in your life We inevitably will just transmit to others and it's just a cycle that repeats itself over and over and over again. And if we say, well, it'll be different for me. I just won't do what my family's always done for generations. We're just deceiving ourselves because the Pharisees were like, oh, it's different for us. We would never treat Jesus, we never treat the people of God how their fathers did before, but they were just repeating the cycle over and over again because their hearts were closed, the transformational power of Jesus at work in their lives. So Jesus points this out, that they are just like the people who murdered the prophets before. So in verse 32, he says this, Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This expression of filling up the measure of your fathers, filling up The sin is referenced throughout Genesis and it's also in the New Testament. It's this idea of of sin is building up against you and you're just increasing it and it's making your judgment come all the sooner. It's you cannot hide your sin, but it is so obvious before you. And then he calls them serpents and a brood of vipers. This is seen several times in the book of Matthew. John the Baptist in in Matthew chapter 3, when the Pharisees came out to John to see him as he was preaching in the wilderness, to the Pharisees, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? And he challenges them to bear fruit that keeps, excuse me, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus himself in chapter 12 of the book of Matthew, after the Pharisees have seen Jesus cast out demons, they say, ah! Jesus can cast out demons because he's from Satan. Jesus says to them, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when your hearts are just full of evil? Some things don't change over time. And calling people a snake or a viper, never a compliment. Right? That's not a compliment now and it wasn't 2,000 years ago. And what Jesus is is helping them, trying to open their eyes to see, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Because the second peril of our own self-deception leads to judgments in the future. When we live a life of self-deception, it ultimately is one that leads to judgments in the future. See, so often we tell ourselves the lie We fall into self-deception that we don't need help. We don't need help. We're fine how we are. Men, do we stop and ask for directions? No, we're fine. We're not lost. We're just taking the scenic path. We will figure it out, but we don't want to stop and ask for help. A couple weeks ago, I was at the gym and I saw a guy next to me out of the corner of my who was doing bench press, which is where you're laying on your back, pushing the weight up. And he, rather than asking for help, tried to push some weight that was too much for him. Next thing you know, there's this loud crash and sounds as weights are literally flying around onto the floor. If he would have just asked for help, he wouldn't have like almost flown weights all over the gym. But we don't want to ask for help because we just think I'm fine how I am. And the Pharisees, in looking at their lives and looking at Jesus, told themselves, we don't need his help. We don't need God's help. And the greatest mistake that we could make is the one that the Pharisees did, and that's to not see their own sin. And because they didn't see it, they ultimately rejected Jesus. That's why he's saying that if they continue down this path, it's not because their sin is so great that they'll go to hell. It's not that their sin is so unforgivable that they'll go to hell. But this, they're not seeing their need for Jesus. And he's saying, if you never see your need for me, there is no other path that you are going down to other than the one that leads away from God and ultimately to hell. See, when we don't have a need for Jesus, we've deceived ourselves. John says it this way in 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, that we're fine. We don't need God's help. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is, is not in us. See, the greatest self-deception of all is believing you don't need Jesus. The greatest lie that you could ever tell yourself is you're fine without Jesus' help. And that's the lie the Pharisees told themselves. And what leads to this lie of self-deception, leading ultimately so that we don't see our need for Jesus, is that we lie, we buy into the lie of our own self-righteousness. Self-righteousness leads to the self-deception that we don't need Jesus. When we look at ourselves and we think, I've got it together. I'm fine how I am. That's why when Jesus comes and he talks to the Pharisees, he looks at them and says, I have not come to call the righteous. You could put quotes around that. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and goes, I haven't come to call the righteous. Because the Pharisees looked at themselves and said, we're righteous. We don't need help. We follow. You see this Old Testament? We got it down. We follow this. We know the Bible better than anyone. We're righteous. We don't need help. Jesus basically was saying, I haven't come to call the self-righteous, but those who are sinners and see their need for God. I implore you tonight, if you're here and you think your life is fine without Jesus, the Bible teaches something very different. And Jesus says that apart from him, you will be separated from God. Apart from him, you will face ultimate judgment. And don't let your self-righteousness allow you to be deceived to think that you're fine without Jesus. The Pharisees thought that and they condemned themselves. Continues, chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus says this, Therefore, this generation. Jesus here is looking to the future and seeing that after him will come more who will testify that Jesus is the way to God, who will proclaim the gospel. And we only need to look further in our scriptures and read the book of Acts to see that immediately upon proclaiming him that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the people are under death threats and of course killed and murdered and imprisoned for preaching the message of Jesus just as he prophesied, just as he said would come. He says here in verse 35 that it says on you will come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. When he talks about Abel here, he's talking about Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. If you don't know the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of God creating the world. Genesis 3 is the story of how sin entered into the world and Adam and Eve entered into sin. In Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced to the first kids, Cain and Abel. And there's a conflict between them. God accepts the sacrifice of Abel. He rejects the sacrifice of Cain. And so in response, Cain murders his brother Abel. Sin has devastating consequences, and it's seen right away in Scripture as Abel is murdered in the fourth chapter of the Bible. It's more well known. Then you have this story that he says here of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. If you were like me this week, you're like, who? Who's that? I don't know. that Like Abel, I get, but who's Zechariah, the son of Berechiah? Zechariah was in 2 Chronicles 24. His story is there. Barakai is actually probably his grandfather's name, which was a common thing to do in Jewish lineage in that time. And Zechariah got up in the temple and proclaimed, you have disobeyed the commandments of the Lord. And so the king of Israel had him grabbed and in the temple stoned and murdered. Now, how the Hebrew Bible was set up, it's a little different than how our English Bible is. How the Hebrew Bible was set up is Genesis was still the first book. Then it would go through, and the last books of the Hebrew Scriptures were First and Second Chronicles. Where First and Second Chronicles book ended the end. They just format it a little bit differently. Abel is the first murder recorded in Scripture. Zechariah was the last murder recorded in their Hebrew scriptures. He's using a wordplay to say every murder from beginning to end is what you've emulated from first to last, from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah. Hey, that works. A to Z. I didn't even realize that. I like it. (laughs) From Abel to Zechariah, A to Z, the whole thing that you have filled up. And all this will come upon this generation See, the third peril of self-deception is we misunderstand the present. We misunderstand the present. The people would continue to come to the Pharisees and proclaim the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, and they would continue to misunderstand it over and over and over and over again. And as we think about our lives and the lies that we may tell ourselves The roots of where this self-deception in our hearts comes from is the pride in our lives. The root of the self-deception in each of our hearts is due to the pride and arrogance that's in our own hearts. This verse in Galatians 6 is so convicting. For if one thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So simple, so clear. If you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. The prophet Obadiah, speaking of pride, says this, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. See, when we are prideful in the present, it causes us to have an attitude of being critical of others and always complimentary of ourselves. Isn't it amazing how we can be so critical of the motives and the intentions and the actions of everyone else, but defend ourselves and everything that we do? That's pride in our hearts. That's pride in our lives. And as we think about self-deception and that we can lie to ourselves And that some of the sinful habits and behaviors we have are because we're lying to ourselves. I love that the one pastor, as I was watching him talk about this idea this week, he he encouraged you to ask yourself this question all the time. Why am I doing this really? Why am I doing this really? In everything that you do, he says, just ask yourself that question, how your interactions with your boss, with your coworkers, and how you treat your kids and the attitude you had towards your spouse. Why did you act that way, really? What was going on in your own heart? Were you trying to, in other ways, were you just exalting yourself? Was it pride that got in the way? To inspect your own heart closer than you try and inspect other people's hearts. See, when we start to realize the lies we've told ourselves, when you truly face the reality of who you are, even when you're a Christian, even when you're walking God, when you start to see some of the sin in your own life, it almost, it should make you cringe. And there's lots of different things to to do. And we're going to finish with with a few um, suggestions that I have I recently did, uh, did a self assessment thing. I'm not saying to take like an online test will solve self deception in your life. It won't. All right? But sometimes you can take some, some tools that will help point out, well, maybe you act this way. And, and when you see that truth about yourself, you cringe. And there was one recently that I took and it was describing, okay, this is your personality. And it said, people with my personality, it says, you're a compulsive liar. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> how dare it say that about me? I, that is so offensive, right? But then it, was, then it kept on saying, it was, you don't consciously plan to lie, but you like to make yourself sound better than you are. So you always just adjust things to make it better. How many people were at Sunday night service last night? Three, 400 were, right? It's not, it's not conscious, but it's constantly, you just tweak things a little bit. And as I was like, I don't do that. And I'm like, I do that. I do that. I lie to make myself sound better. It's just so natural for me to do because even though I've been saved, my heart still struggles with sin and I deceive myself and think, well, that's okay. But no, it's not. I'm lying. If that wasn't enough, it goes, your tendency is to often have people in your life who you use them and you don't value the relationship with them. I'm like, oh, that's not me. I'm a pastor. I don't use people. And I was telling my wife that, and she gently looked at me and just said, when's the last time you talked to one of your interns who's no longer at the church? I said, that's not an appropriate question to ask me. How dare you ask me, right? I'm like, oh, oh, I can use people. I, I don't do it intentionally. I don't try and use people, but I've had to be like, no, I need to, I, I value their relationship. No, Even if they're no longer here, I need to call them. But you see the truth sometimes, the lies you tell yourself, and it's, Hurtful and it's painful, but it's necessary. It's necessary for us to grow. And so, how can we see some of the self deception in our own hearts and in our own lives? Three suggestions for us, real quick. First is to ask God to search you, ask God to search your heart. A well known psalm, a psalm of David in Psalm 139, says this Search me, O God. And know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I don't know about you, but every time I've had the courage to ask God to show me sin in my life, he finds something. Right? He doesn't come up empty. He's not like, Oh, you're actually pretty good today. You know, there's always something there. And I think there always will be. I think that's a pattern that we need to realize. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And one of the activities of the Holy Spirit is to continue to provoke your conscience to see the sin in your life. And as you invite God to see that and to point out your shortcomings, you'll stop being self-deceived and thinking you have it all together. And it'll point out some of the errors of your own ways. A second suggestion is to seek feedback from others. To seek feedback and input from others. See, lots of times we think about, well, if something's wrong with me, I go to church, so people will come tell me. And then once they tell me, then I'll change it. And that's true. If you see some glaring sin in your brother or sister's life, the Bible says you should approach them with gentleness and with kindness and and rebuke them. But I think if we want to see the deception and the lies we tell ourselves, if we're serious about it, we need to ask others and give them permission to speak the truth to us about ourselves. To ask people who you know, who know you, and say, what am I missing about myself? What what attitudes have you seen in me that aren't honoring to the Lord? The Bible is filled with talking about people who listen and accept reproach and feedback from others, and they're called wise Versus those who don't, who are called fools. A few examples in Proverbs. Proverbs says this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. He's self-deceived, but a wise man listens to to advice. In Proverbs 15, it says this, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise, but whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof, gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. This is hard, but I would encourage you that, that if you hopefully have people who you know and love and trust, to periodically ask them, What sins or what patterns are you seeing in my life that aren't fully honoring to God? Because you know what? When we give people the permission to speak the truth into our lives, oftentimes it's a lot easier for them to do. And we're in a place that we're able to receive their instruction and be able to see these sins and the lies that we're telling ourselves. The third step, the third way to kind of get out of a pattern of self-deception is to read, and then importantly, read and apply the truth. Read and apply the truth. The book of James chapter one says this well-known passage, but I think we sometimes miss it. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What are people who know a lot about the Bible but don't obey the Bible doing? They're just deceiving themselves. They are telling themselves a great lie. See, great self deception is often accompanied by great knowledge. Great self deception is often accompanied by great knowledge of Scripture. You know the Bible. You know what it says. You're just not doing it. But you can talk the talk enough. You can come to church. You can be around Christians, and you know enough that you can fit in, and you can do it all, and you can be lying your way through life. That Those who not just hear the word, but those who do the word. See, maturity throughout the New Testament is measured with things like obedience, trust, faithfulness, and a knowledge of God leads us to that things. But knowledge of God apart from obedience just furthers our own self-deception. The Pharisees were the people of Jesus's time who knew their Bibles better than anyone, but they deceived themselves and they missed Jesus. As we get to see and study and know God's word, may we not just be those who know the word, but may wait, excuse me, may we be those who do the word, who obey and are applying God's word to our lives. It's really easy to tell ourselves lies. It's hard to see the truth about ourselves. It's hard sometimes to see the sin in our own hearts. But let's not be like the Pharisees who were easy to project themselves. I would have done it differently if I was alive. We don't want to repeat the past. We don't want to be so self-righteous that we don't see our need for Jesus. And we don't want to just deceive ourselves into thinking we're fine how we are, but to continue to see the need that each of us have each and every day for God in our lives. Jesus, we do thank you for the salvation that comes through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That while we were lost in our sin, you came and died for us. And that we don't have to pretend to be righteous. That we have our lives together. We don't have to tell ourselves a lie anymore. But we can look to you. For you are the truth. And the truth sets us free. God, may we be free from the lies of even self-deception, the things that are so hard to see in our own hearts, in our own lives. For those of us who are walking with you tonight, maybe even just right now in the quiet of your heart, just pray that prayer. God, if there's sin in my life, if there's attitudes, desires that are far from you, that aren't in line with your will, Would you expose those? God, and as you reveal the sin in our hearts, we thank you for the promise of your word that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that there will always be more grace in your heart than there is sin in our lives. Pray all this in Jesus' name.